You're listening to the Molehill Podcast, an audio anthology of treasured writings read aloud by the writers themselves. I'm your host, Drew Miller. Quarantine Quatrains, Part 1. Awake to what was once a busy day, when you would rush and hurry on your way, snatch at your breakfast, start the grim commute. But time and tide have turned another way. For now, like you, the day is yawning wide, and all its old events are set aside. It opens gently for you, takes its time, and holds for you whatever you decide. This morning's light is brighter than it seems. Your room is rafted with its golden beams. The bowl of night was richly filled with sleep, and dawn's left hand is holding all your dreams. Your mantle clock still sounds its silver chime. The empty page invites an idle rhyme. This quarantine has taken many things, but left you with the precious gift of time. Your time is all your own, yet not your own. The rose may open or be overblown. So breathe in this day's fragrance whilst you may. To each of us the date of death's unknown. Then settle at your desk, uncap your pen, and open the old manuscript again. The empty hours may tease you out of thought, yet leave you with a poem now and then. I think of old Cayenne, who stood before the tavern shouting, open up the door, and wish I might carouse the night with him. Alas, that such carousals are no more. I'll keep the rules my country has imposed. My life, like my small garden, is enclosed. But still I'll raise a glass and pledge my friends, although for us the tavern door is closed. For in my cellar, ranged in dusty rows, are sleeping poets waiting to disclose deep memories of Saint-Emilion, whose vineyards reach to where the Dordogne flows. And with these wines I travel where I please, from Rhineland to the lofty Pyrenees. I saunter through the chateaus of the Loire, drawing the cork on any one of these. So with the poets let me praise the vine, and pledge my absent friends in vintage wine. Sensing sometimes the savour at my lips speaks of a love both human and divine. And when I come to taste my life's last drop, when all that flowed in me comes to a stop, then let me see my saviour pledge his love. Come close to me and help me drink the cup. Some days I am diverted by a call, the soft computer chime that summons all to show a face to faces that we meet, mirages, empty mirrors on the wall. Alas, that all the friends we ever knew, whose lives were fragrant and whose touch was true, can only meet us on some little screen, then zoom away with scarcely an adieu. 
We share with them the little that we know, these galleries of ghosts set in a row. They flicker on the screen of life a while, but some have left the meeting long ago. We used to stroll together on the green who now divide the squares upon the screen. The faces of our friends so far apart tease us with tenderness that might have been. Someday we'll break the bread, we'll pour the wine and meet and kiss and feast beneath the vine. Till then, we'll sweeten solitude with verse and yearn through pain and watch each day decline. That was Malcolm Geit reading the first three poems from his collection, Quarantine Quatrains, which originally appeared on the Rabbit Room blog in June of this year. I want to take a moment here to say thank you for listening to this podcast, for participating in the fun, and for all the kind and encouraging messages you've sent my way. I'm so glad that these 30 minutes each week are bringing you joy. A friend of mine told me recently that she simply loves being read to and that this podcast has been valuable to her in providing that unique pleasure. I think she's absolutely right. Even for me in the editing process, I find myself savoring the part where I get to sit back and listen to the voices of these writers. And I think there's more going on there under the surface too. I'm reminded of something that Rabbit Room blog contributor Steve Guthrie mentioned in his series Spirit and Sound. Writing about the distinct sadness of 2020, he said that we are simultaneously inundated with one another's words, yet starved for one another's breath. That is, we're drowning in perspectives and opinions, but are on short supply of physical presence. This episode is all about that discrepancy and the tension it has introduced into our lives. We'll hear from Malcolm Geit and Andrew Roycroft. Malcolm has spent his quarantine in Cambridge, England, while Andrew has been hunkering down in Malisle, Northern Ireland. Both Malcolm and Andrew reference the idea of distance, of a gap that has stranded us from one another. Yet, at the same time, what they are offering us is precisely their voices, their breath, and in a way, their presence. I just love that both of these remarkable poets have responded to the pandemic by digging deeper into their craft and naming the seemingly unnameable. So let's turn our attention first to Malcolm Geit, who, well, first of all, there's something I absolutely must get out of the way before we begin. I learned something recently about Malcolm Geit that has suddenly made so much sense of the world I live in. I feel that I have a greater bearing on reality, that my compass now points to true north, having acquired this dubious fact. Malcolm Geit is Tom Bombadil. Yeah, it's true. Go back and read Lord of the Rings. You'll see. One thing that I love about Malcolm's poetry is that it's especially well-suited to being read aloud. In fact, reading it silently is nearly impossible. Sit down with one of his poems for more than 90 seconds, and I'll bet that you too will soon be on your feet, pacing as you speak his lines aloud, savoring the way they feel on your tongue. 
it's a great gift to hear Malcolm himself savor his poetry like that. So here he is, first telling us a bit more about how his quarantine quatrains project got started, and then picking up where he left off with poems four through seven from the collection. Enjoy. It's funny how forgotten yet familiar books suddenly suggest themselves in lockdown. I've been rereading a lovely old copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam in Edward Fitzgerald's famous verse translation and taking comfort, pleasure and fresh insight from it in this isolation. I've also been re-entranced by its elegant form. Fitzgerald cast his translation into a series of little quatrains, four-line stanzas, each chiming sonorously on a single rhyming sound. They start with a couplet, and then he allows himself a free, unrhymed line to gather energy and momentum before ringing the quatrain to a close as the final line returns to the first rhyme sound with a new, renewed emphasis and satisfying finality. So, the famous opening stanza. Awake for morning in the bowl of night has flung the stone that puts the stars to flight and lo, the hunter in the east has caught the sultan's turret in a noose of light. Spurred on by this example, I've been composing some quarantine quatrains of my own as a kind of leisured conversation with the original Rubaiyat, but also as something of a lockdown journal. Looking back on these, I see a progression or pattern through which many of us have been moving. I started with a sense of the unexpected opening out of time and apparent leisure. Awake to what was once a busy day, when you would rush and hurry on your way, snatch at your breakfast, start the grim commute. But time and tide have turned another way. This morning's light is brighter than it seems. Your room is rafted with its golden beams. <clears throat> the bowl of night was richly filled with sleep, and dawn's left hand is holding all your dreams. But soon, of course, I found that Zoom came zooming in, and I had to negotiate the strange ambivalence of that medium, the way the closeness of familiar faces on the screen teases you with connection and at the same moment only emphasises distance. Alas, that all the friends we ever knew, whose lives were fragrant and whose touch was true, can only meet us on some little screen, then zoom away with scarcely an adieu. We share with them the little that we know, these galleries of ghosts set in a row. They flicker on the screen of life a while, but some have left the meeting long ago. We used to stroll together on the green, who now divide the squares upon the screen. The faces of our friends so far apart tease us with tenderness that might have been. But when I retreated, zoomed out again to my garden hut, I found myself bathed and soothed by birdsong. Here in my garden hut, just on the brink of making some new song of all I think, a sudden thrill and ripple of true song makes mockery of my poor pen and ink. Beyond my hut, a vivid glimpse of red, a bright-eyed robin by the garden bed, sings his mellifluous and liquid notes that utter more than all I've ever said. 
Like many of us, I was becoming aware of how widely nature is returning, of the natural rewilding that is taking place all around us. And here, the original poem, the original Rubaiyat, uh, once more proved suggestive, if not prophetic. So I began one of my own quatrains with a couplet of Kayam's. They say the lion and the lizard keep the courts where Yamshed gloried and drank deep. But now in every corner of the world the wild things flourish whilst the cities sleep. Such reflection led me as it has led so many others to wonder whether this crisis might lead us to a chastened and gentler way of being in the world. Perhaps in all this crisis, all this pain, this reassessment of our loss and gain, nature rebukes our brief authority, yet offers us a chance to start again, and this time with a new humility, with chastened awe and mutual courtesy, to re-accept the unearned gift of life with gratitude, with joy and charity. Perhaps we'll learn to live without so much, to nurture and to cherish, not to clutch. And if I'm spared, I'll hold the years I'm given with gentler tenure and a lighter touch. Here in my garden hut, just on the brink of making some new song of all I think, a sudden thrill and ripple of true song makes mockery of my poor pen and ink. Beyond my hut, a vivid glimpse of red, a bright-eyed robin by the garden bed sings his mellifluous and liquid notes that utter more than all I've ever said. Three busy sparrows soon take up the song, Chaffinches and blue tits join the throng. A pattern of bright music nets the air and catches me off guard and makes me long, long for the joys that I have yet to sing, long for the sudden flight, the lifting wing, long for the songs of summers yet to come, long for the freedom future days may bring. Though sorrow runs so deep, and our brief songs are burdened still with all the ills and wrongs of this sad exile. Something in us sings, sings from that garden where the soul belongs. On Sunday morning, standing on my lawn, I bless the kindling of this Sabbath dawn, and do not seek withdrawal from the world, since all the world itself is now withdrawn. In Piccadilly Circus, still as stone, its central hub become a quiet zone. Eros may loose his arrow as he will. The little love god languishes alone. From Marble Arch and all along the mall, only the pigeons still stand sentinel, and all the streets that thronged with rush and fret are soaked in silence, almost magical. No need to find the Isle of Inish free, or seek with Brendan islands in the sea. For now, the town and countryside alike partake the Sabbath rest of Galilee. And all that smudge of noise, the muffled roar of distant rush hour traffic is no more. The roadway and the pavement grey both keep a greater silence in the deep heart's core. 
They say the lion and the lizard keep the courts where Yamshed gloried and drank deep. But now, in every corner of the world, the wild things flourish while the cities sleep. For when they see our influence abate, the banished creatures soon resume their state. Blithe dolphins sport along the Grand Canal, coyotes call across the Golden Gate. The grass grows green in every city square. The little foxes, once so shy and rare, saunter our streets and boulevards by day, whilst birds and insects throng the cleaner air. How soon the tide of nature has returned. How soon renew the forests that we burned. How soon they seed and repossess our streets, those precious plants and animals we spurned. Perhaps... In all this crisis, all this pain, this reassessment of our loss and gain, nature rebukes our brief authority, yet offers us the chance to start again, and this time with a new humility, with chastened awe and mutual courtesy, to re-accept the unearned gift of life with gratitude, with joy and charity. Perhaps we'll learn to live without so much, to nurture and to cherish, not to clutch. And, if I'm spared, I'll hold the years I'm given with gentler tenure and a lighter touch. Whilst experts on the radio explain mind-numbing numbers rising by the day, ciphers of unimaginable pain, Each evening they announce the deadly toll, and patient voices calmly call the roll. I hear the numbers, cannot know the names, behind each number, mind and heart and soul. Behind each number, one beloved face, a light in life whom no one can replace, leaves on this world a signature, a trace, a gleaning and a memory of grace. All loved and loving, carried to the grave, the ones whom every effort could not save. Amongst them, all those carers whose strong love bought life for others with the lives they gave. The sun sets, and I find myself in prayer, lifting aloft the sorrow that we share. Feeling for words of hope amidst despair, I voice my vespers through the quiet air. O Christ, who suffers with us, hold us close, deep in the secret garden of the rose. Raise over us the banner of your love, and raise us up beyond our last repose. We're now going to turn to Andrew Roycroft, who will share three poems that he's written as a means of processing his own experience of 2020. He'll introduce them one at a time, sharing some context along the way. Andrew's poetry is full of strikingly precise images that evoke, for me at least, strong emotion. He's a very economical writer. I find that when reading his poems, 
My imagination is filled with impressions within just a few phrases, and yet the density of his writing never weighs too heavy. These poems in particular are quite pastoral in nature. As I've gotten to know them, I've received their earnest offering of comfort and hope. Not a comfort that wishes to escape suffering, but one born of proximity to it. It's hard not to praise Andrew's poetry without just quoting all of it to you. However, I will share this one line from his poem, Distance, in advance, so that you can keep your ears open for it. Referring to the inability to embrace loved ones, even in their grief, he writes, This is charged space that craves new collision, that would split each atom of exiled grief, bring disordered grace, insist on confusion of homes and hearts and limbs and life. Here's Andrew Roycroft sharing both the backstory and the poems that make up his Grace Triptych, which first appeared on the Rabbit Room blog just a few weeks ago in August. Enjoy. Grace Triptych The experience of lockdown that gripped much of the world during the COVID-19 crisis was, for me, a strange period in creative terms. New ministry and family pressures brought on by the existence of the virus meant that much of the mental space I rely on for reading and reflection was gone. In the earliest days of isolating and social distancing, I felt like I had undergone a power cut in terms of writing. Into the silence and darkness, these three poems nudged at the door and eventually came in and made themselves at home. They were those happiest of poetry writing experiences, pieces which felt pre-written in the heart before they entered my mind. Occasionally a poem surprises you as a poet because it lays bare emotions and anxieties which you were only vaguely aware of before you met your own thoughts written down. To read them after they are written is like remembering and recounting a vivid dream. These are those kinds of pieces. Selah was written in mid-April, when the uncertainties of COVID-19 seemed to be most intense globally. The airspace over our home, normally punctuated by the lights of commercial aircraft, were now more deeply dark, with Venus taking full advantage of an empty stage to show its glory. Families were at home, away from the preoccupations of work, focused solely on avoiding the plague that seemed so near to our doors. I wrote this poem in order to make a sound in that hushed moment, and the term Selah seemed like a good fit. That mysterious term, which disturbs the flow of the Psalms by saying something silent, seemed so appropriate. The poem seems to insist on looking upwards, And I find that the abandonment of form, apart from metre, provided a way of reflecting the tension I felt between the fixity of God's purpose and the seeming fluidity of circumstance. I also felt that Selah gave me the room to rehabilitate April from the cruelty so often attributed to it, emphasising the life that follows the pains of the final month that feels a little like winter. The COVID-19 crisis sharpened the focus of those thoughts and feelings, and allowed me to run my eye heavenwards and hopewards again. Selah, because the planes no longer fly, I dared tonight to trust the sky, the fixity of stars, the full moon uncrowned by icy light, 
The true north, not now misread as flight, the evenings settling upwards chill. I would impute good faith to this April, firmly believe in seasons sure and grass that, in spite of our under-heaven distress, we are in a universe of laws that, panoplied above all these furrowed cars, populous homes with children's shadowed dreams, a hand which could constellate such fading lights, would wait an age for their sweet demise to give us sight of unfaltering grace. He, from the circle of ravelling earth, soft whispers to our pains, not death, but birth. Distance was written to reflect the difficulties presented by COVID-19 in terms of community and cohesion and grief. In my work as a pastor, I was confronted with the reality of people who were suffering their final illnesses, but whose bedsides I was unable to visit. This was followed by funerals at which I had to remain distant from families engulfed in grief, and I so missed the efficacy of touch to compensate where words are wanting. I opted for the sonnet form, partly as a means of reflecting the constrictions brought on by the pandemic, and partly because of the sheer relief of writing a final couplet in which Jesus crosses the gap caused by the virus. My prayer with this poem is that it might touch something universal among those who have lost loved ones and friends at a time when the grace of gripping another's hand, cradling a sorrowing friend's head, and shouldering grief in touchable, tangible ways have been taken from us. Distance. We will not embrace this day, but maintain our distance, a widening loss marked in time, but not in touch. Each moved against the grain, as though sorrow would remain in lines and not transgress, nor breach, nor blot, nor blur. These are times of feelings camped and stayed, of charity retrained to speak that it is there, and reach no hand but heavenwards to pray. This is charged space that craves new collision, that would split each atom of exiled grief, bring disordered grace, insist on confusion of homes and hearts and limbs and life. But now, with Mary, Martha, in vacant tears, we eye the gap for Jesus drawing near. Shells was written as a reflection on the shoreside walks which we have been able to enjoy as a family in the later stages of COVID-19 lockdown a luxury that vulnerable family health had prohibited for months. We live at the lip of the RAC and have a tradition of bringing home treasures from the beach each time we visit it. A large vase in our hallway has been gradually filling up over the years and that image of shells rather than sand being emptied into the hourglass really caught my attention. There's something powerful and providential in the arrival of commonplace shells on the shore something vibrant about bringing their colour into our home as a measure of moments spent together. As a parent, time is visibly outgrowing me. 
the height and happy maturing of my daughters marks their progress into the world and foreshadows my eventual regress out of it. That tidal nature of time, the treasuring of filled up hours with things of no monetary value but of huge emotional value seemed a fitting way to reflect that. Again, the sonnet form raised its hand for this poem and I was happy to let it in, particularly as it afforded me the opportunity to issue an invitation to others to fill up the hours well. Shells. The vase in the hall holds trophies from all our walks at shore, Shale, fragments of leaden skies, smooth-edged brick ends from Belfast walls, oil-painting muscle, canvas of heaven, dog whelks, talons, ordinary like days with the girls, gathered bounty in small hands. Time is a rising tide that we display in glass, stacked ground in place of sinking sand, old porcelain with washed-out pattern face, and now long past family Sunday best, no more adrift, but in our home, the grace of waves turning up lives from roiling rest. Come then, let's brim the wide lips of this jar, store up the shells with which we fill these hours. When all three of these poems were delivered, revised and refined into a more final shape, what surprised me was that grace had unconsciously been mentioned in each of them. This was not by my design, but that seems so appropriate. Grace at all times is not something which we rule in or rule out of our way of seeing the world. Instead, it sweetly intrudes into the darkness and makes a home in the middle of our making the best sense out of the world that we can. A grace triptych seemed like a good way to bind these seemingly disparate pieces together a three-panelled perspective on God's movement and mercy in the midst of tough times and public fear. Grace is the theme which binds every part of our creative work together, and at a time when public spirit and public health seem to be mutually in decline, I was deeply grateful for the cohesive force of God's faithful disposition towards me. My prayer is that the grace which insisted on a place in these poems might do the same work in the hearts of those who read, whatever their uncertainty or turmoil. That was Andrew Roycroft reading his Grace Triptych. You can find everything you just heard him read on the Rabbit Room blog by searching Grace Triptych. This week's episode has been perhaps a bit heavier than usual, a bit more downcast. So what better time for a hearty dose of your favorite game show of surpassing silliness, Words of Befuddlement. What a week for words of befuddlement, dear listener. What a week. You were given perhaps our most enigmatic collection of syllables yet. Ablute. And you did not fail me with the definitions you sent in. So, let's get right to them. Ablute. An onomatopoeia. The sucking sound made from a shoe 
being lifted out of the mud. Example sentence. The sound of Hagrid devouring his morning grits was like the oblutes of a medieval army fleeing a field of battle. Oblute. A person known to indulge in a tremendous number of berries in a single sitting may also be used to refer to a binge of this sort. The word is of Norse origin, and while it originally referred specifically to a person who binges on blueberries, it can mean one who engages in the ravenous partaking of blackberries, boysenberries, strawberries, cloudberries, or any other variety of berries. Lexicographers trace the earliest usages of the term being in reference to King Harold Bluetooth Gormson of Denmark and Norway, who, besides being the inspiration for the name of the now ubiquitous Bluetooth technology, was known to consume extreme amounts of blueberries. Oblute. The sound of cake batter hitting the floor. Also, the sound uttered by the one whom split the cake batter. Many times, both variations of the word are simultaneous. Oblute. A shoe that resembles a boot, or, alternatively, a boot that is more shoe-like than boot-like. Oblute. Shorthand for a heist in which the suspect flees the scene of a crime using an ineffective or easily recognizable form of transport originating after the Nebraska Museum robbery of 1972, where suspects fled the scene by hot air balloon. Sheriff Douglas remarked to the press that they had apprehended the criminals upon landing, capturing the old balloon loot and all. Hence, obloot. This week, I'm of the opinion that the inventiveness of our listeners' definitions, their sheer industriousness with the endless potential of the English language, has left Pete Peterson in the dust. His original definition for oblute is stolen treasure that is somewhat longer than it is wide. I've got to say, Pete, I expected more from you, and that's a challenge. And now I will give you this week's word of befuddlement. I invite you to send in your own made-up definition of this word to drew at rabbitroom.com, and I might just read it during next week's show. This week's word is... Spooth. S-P-O-O-T-H-E. It's a verb. Spooth. That's it for episode four of the Molehill Podcast. Tune in next week for more poetry, stories, and shenanigans. Special thanks to Malcolm Geit, Andrew Roycroft, Ron Block, and of course, Zach and Maggie, who composed original music just for this podcast. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To learn more, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. See you next week. Thank you.